listening to the Exile Hour. Hosted by Kayla Jackson Dulles and Evan Phillips Lipson. We hope you enjoy the show wherever you are in the world time zones. Remember, be safe, be vigilant, and keep listening. The culture is going down on itself. The culture is going down on itself! It's like a hammerhead shark feeding on its entrails, chewing its way through its own body, going down on itself! Welcome to the Exile Hour. I'm Caleb Jackson-Dills. And this is Evan Pillip-Lipson. Tonight on the Exile Hour, we have the pleasure of speaking to Mr. Dan Zukovic. Yes, underground filmmaker, actor, auteur, musician. Uh, I first encountered Dan Zukovic's film, The Last Big Thing, which is maybe his uh, greatest cultural stain at the Angelica Theater in 1998, uh, knowing absolutely nothing about the movie, my brother brought me into it, re- maybe reading some kind of review, and my stars were changed forever. We couldn't believe what we had actually seen. Uh, his output is far from prolific. Features um, have only occurred about every decade, at least. Um, his second feature was Dark Ark in 2004. Um which features a Huizman-like character um, named Vicant Loris, who attempts to aesthetically shut himself off from the modern world and enter his own reality, become enmeshed in this sicky, eccentric love triangle. And then in, I believe, 2014, he released the film Scammerhead, which is essentially about a kind of Ponzi scheme-esque figure uh, who seems motivated primarily by his own survival and and the uh, kicks of living on the edge of of this uh, capitalist exploits. But uh, most recently, he's released a film, or there's a film that will be soon released, called Mississippi Bloodslide, uh, returned to his the short film format, uh, which preceded the three features, and um, we're exceedingly pleased and excited to have him on as a guest here. Let's get Dan on the horn. How's the world out there? Uh, the world is fine. Uh, you know, it, it's, it goes apace. As we we are about to uh, you know catch another uh, turning of the calendar, yes, every day a day to reinvent yourself, but none more so than when we turn the page. Uh, you know the the David Bowie uh, plan is is I I think correct. <laughs> Which is what? Uh, many incarnations, right? Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which phase are you in right now? <laughs> I think I'm in that later phase when he just wore the gray suits and, you know, hung out for a minute or two on uh, some cameo <laughs> cameo TV show. Certainly not to the, uh, you know, the high uh, flamboyance of the spiders from Mars period uh, at this point. Yeah, you're a cameo here on the Exile Hour. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you're, on, you're on a podcast. <laughs> well, hey, come on now. I mean, you know, I'm sure a Bowie would have done them, uh, you know, before he sort of, you know, 
went into exile himself. Right, right. Not to denigrate, we're, we we still consider this the the the, age, the high days of uh, radio here. <laughs> Absolutely, the pinnacle. Yeah, it's the it's the morning zoo over here. <laughs> <laughs> superb, superb. Well, sort of jumping right into things. Um, I was sort of observing it, you know, how it seems there's somewhat of a scarcity of biographical information online regarding the trajectory of your career and personal life. And uh, I'm wondering if you would mind elaborating a bit on your upbringing and specifically what caused your transition from the realm of early punk rock into a career working in film and television. Sure, I, I can give you the basics. I, I was born in Vancouver, Canada, and also lived uh, on and off in Hawaii, Honolulu, growing up. Um, and uh, certainly, you know, film was an early, early obsession of mine. I mean, this was the, the days of the, uh, the 70s. And, uh, you know, I became definitely obsessed with, you know, watching uh, old movies on television. Certainly film noir was an early, early uh, obsession of mine. I can remember, you know, staying up till 3 a.m. on TV with the, the cathode ray flickering uh, on my face as, uh Widmark's uh, Pick Up on South Street played or or Night in the City. And uh, so, I, you know, definitely, you know, I was into that early on. And then, um, you know, punk rock hit uh, with with uh, meteoric force uh, up here in Vancouver in, in uh, 1978. Um, so 78, yeah, through 82, um, there was an amazing scene up here. Um, which you know had some of that uh, you know that that energy that maniacal energy you know even that some of the, the noirs had certainly you know early Woodmark and early Kirk Douglas movies there was some connection to, to me between uh, those guys and a Johnny Rotten uh, you know etc. So um, you know that uh, that definitely catapulted me. You know certainly I was. In the audience, we had uh, there was a uh, a club in Vancouver called the Smile and Buddha, which was the uh, sort of CBGBs of the scene. So I was in on that as a very very early teen, underaged, uh, you know, watching uh, the great bands, DOA, the Subhumans, you know, Pointed Sticks, etc. And uh, I, I remember seeing the Clash uh, in 1979 at, at the Gardens. There was you know like 1,500 people just front and center getting my mind blown by Strummer and the crew. Um, and yeah, then started uh, started my own band, The Gargoyles, in probably early 79. We played around, had a couple legendary uh, in our own minds, but maybe beyond that, three-night stints at the, the Smiling Buddha. Uh, and, you know, uh, also I remember being in this band that was like thrown together to, to be the second band on the bill uh, with we call them fuck bands here where people would just throw a band together and just anyone would grab an instrument. And, uh, I was thrown in on guitar with Wimpy Roy of the subhumans and Ron, uh, the vocalist of black flag, uh, some three man band where, you know, the tunes were cooked up in a pub across the street, you know, two hours before the show. And so it was pretty crazy. And, but amazingly, uh, uh, exciting and it was also a, a diverse scene you know it was you know punk sort of became a little you know a little more just sort of thrash hardcore a little uh later into the early 80s and the vancouver scene was was very disparate there were interesting you know pop bands and you know more just you know 
weird instrument noise bands. And it was an amazing, uh, uh, you know, kind of diverse scene. Um, and yeah, then I went to, you know, university in uh, Seattle, got, got the classic, uh, umbrella English major degree. Um, and, um, then, uh, yeah, I went to Toronto to, to become an actor. I sort of got into Shakespeare in that initial phase, played, you know, uh, some Shakespeare roles in Toronto and then sort of segued into, you know, writing and uh, putting on my own plays, which was kind of probably the beginning of the, you know, the transition towards, you know, writing and directing independent film, um, which was... Uh, you know, uh, just theater, you know, basically these strange shows. I remember at the Rivoli in Toronto, which was this cool club where the, the, uh, the, the comedian group, the kids in the hall, uh, used to put on their shows. And, um, yeah, I cooked up this play called, uh, the final meeting of Peter O'Toole and Richard Burton. <laughs> I played O'Toole. <laughs> Another guy played Burton and it was like this fantastic, you know, fant- you know, fantasia on them meeting in their twilight years in the, in the, the back of some room of a Hollywood party and railing against Hollywood and, uh, you know, the, 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 uh, the denigration of their, their epic thespic style, et cetera. So, um, yeah, you know, there, there was a little theater phase. Then I continued on to New York in the mid eighties during that, uh, amazing time in, uh, New York and did, you know, some off, off Broadway and put, put on some more of my own shows. And then, uh, and then wound out in, uh, Los Angeles where, you know, uh, theater also was still going, but, uh, the, the whole sort of fabled or now eulogized, I guess, nineties indie film scene sort of creeped up. And I was sort of uh, part of that uh, scene, which in my mind had a lot of connections to the punk scene, uh, you know, the late seventies, early eighties, it was uh, that sort of DIY uh, mm-hmm. mentality. And emerging from a punk uh, background or background in punk rather, which has sort of always placed a high premium on authenticity. Would you say it gave you an early insight in the way that said notions of authenticity and unfettered individuality sort of tragic comically amounted to a little more than a type of conformity that uh, increasingly became a mesh with the social order? Uh, yes. To say the emperor's new clothes. Yes. Yes. I mean, that was certainly, you know, a big, a big wellspring of, of, you know, of, of, you know, some of the ideas, certainly the ideas in my first film, the last big thing. And, uh, uh, of course, you know, it was the also simultaneously with indie film was, you know, the burgeoning of the, you know, the big Hollywood blockbuster sort of mentality. So, um, yeah, I mean, it, you know, definitely, you know, the spirit of punk was certainly, was certainly in there, uh, you know, percolating in the mix. Absolutely. Yeah. And also, um, well, Caleb, you, you most recently watched Vertman, right? Um, oh my! <laughs> a true, a true security. Uh, yeah, which I also noticed was uh, you. Know, you had sent me that um, uh, sort of as a as a thank you for uh, helping to facilitate the um, uh, Chattanooga Film Festival premiere, which is maybe also your U.S. premiere of. Uh, yes, it was our U.S. premiere. Yeah, Scammerhead is um, a much appreciated thank you. You sent me a DVD copy of. Um, Dark Ark, which I noticed the uh, Vertman was was also on the extras of that. But I think it's amazing if you look up on YouTube, uh, 
Bergman, it was like very early on, somebody had uploaded it in like 2007, which I think YouTube came oh, out wow, in six, really? And it's like, maybe, maybe has like 500 views on there, which is... Uh, <laughs> I had no idea, but uh, I, I, you know, I mean, uh, more power to them. Uh, Vertman in that... <laughs> That crazy car with the, uh, you know, the the battering ram in front of it, uh, you know, ex- exists somewhere. <laughs> yeah, it made me think of, um, um, you, do you know the Killdozer story? The Killdozer story, not uh, not specifically. It was a guy in Colorado that was angry at the city, and then he outfitted the car. Like, uh, he outfitted a car to destroy the city. It was like a bulldozer, but it was turned into like a tank. Oh, wow. Well, that's that's on much, much more uh, brutal levels than uh, what the, the security <laughs> guard does in Bertman. But, um, yeah, coming from the same, uh, you know, toxic wellspring of, you know, rage and uh, anger. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. But doing it, doing it for justice, right? Of course. It's it's all about justice uh, in the. Uh, in the deluded and twisted mind of uh, our man, yes. Yeah, I, I almost think that's like a calling card of what you might hear today. You know that it's not about revenge; it's about justice. I mean, this was this is rather <laughs> exactly. prescient, right? <laughs> yes, yeah. I mean, that's you, you could definitely make that point. Uh, you know, looking for those those uh, those easy justifications. Yeah, I, I view that one as like the most. Uh, I mean, yeah, the early stuff. Uh, well, you could almost see um, Conjure of Monikers, uh, another early short, as being almost a study for uh, the Simon Geis character in Last Big Thing, which is more fleshed out as a feature. Um, but Vertman, which interestingly is, I, well, I haven't seen Now Renting, but I, I, I presume that that's the only short that, uh, well, not only is it not you in the leading role, but you're not in it at all as uh, I am it's it's uh, no it's it's a dual lead um myself and uh, my friend Daniel Roebuck uh, you know he is ultimately the protagonist but uh, I'm the sort of antagonist figure in the film and um yeah just like you pointed out uh, conjure monikers sort of you know led to uh or was fleshed out to you know to some degree in the last big thing uh, now renting has has some connections to it to uh, mainly in, lo- in locations that San Fernando fault area. We uh, that was the first time we used it in uh, in now renting. Yeah, I've sort of come away with the sense that your um, your three feature films comprise something of a cinematic trilogy, um, where you have these three seemingly disparate outsider protagonists slash antiheroes, all with their own sort of outlandish idiosyncrasies, you know, eccentricities, elaborately constructed personas, and so forth. Um, you kind of call into question modern notions of progress and this authenticity thing. Um, was this an idea or continuity that you consciously conceived of, or am I kind of going off on a limb? Here? Not necessarily. I mean, I think there are connections. No, definitely, I, I wouldn't. It's not a, not at all conscious. I mean, and certainly the fact of just you know the rather lengthy intervals between features, um, you know, sort of uh, you know twigs you to the fact that each one was coming from from its own kind of space. But I think you're you're definitely onto something in that there are, there are some solid connections. But what I would say one of the things I was al- always playing with too was just 
you know, you call these figures, you know, you know, anti-heroes or whatever, but it's, it's very malleable in the sense that, you know, depending on people's perspective, and I'm totally open to just anyone, anyone's, you know, take on it, but, uh, they could be outright antagonists, you know, I mean, you know, uh, you know, certainly in, in dark arc, um, you know, the, the female lead juxta, you know, could easily be, you know, consider the, the protagonist and even in, in last big thing, uh, uh, Darla, uh, the female lead could, you know, easily be considered the, the, uh, the protagonist, uh, Scammerhead's a different situation. Obviously the, uh, the Scammerhead, uh, Silas Breeze is throughout and narrating maybe, you know, in a, in a questionable way, his life story. But, um, yeah, I was definitely playing with, you know, certainly just, you know, the various levels of just, you know, I mean, again, as you say, going against that sort of a bit more, you know, commercial codified mentality of, you know, the protagonist, the hero, even if the hero is, you know, slightly got some edgy things, he's still a hero. Whereas, uh, in these films, you know, they, they could situate themselves in a pretty wide spectrum of, you know, good to bad, um, depending on your take. Yeah, sort of a, a, another observation, like uh, how it seems that um, uh, maybe like Orson Welles is, is a particular figure. It's, it's served as something of a model for your own existence in terms of taking on a variety of acting roles in order to fund creative projects which fall outside of the conventional marketplace uh often intensely critical of said marketplace um mm -hmm. I, I think of like uh timothy carey is another figure oh wow wow uh, yes. maybe part of part of part of that tradition um as well as maybe more contemporary uh like uh crispin glover um and uh sure other than yourself and glover uh which i know you've worked with his father so there's obviously a bit of connection there in scammerhead um, mm -hmm. are there any other actors slash auteurs that you see as working in this mode? Well, I mean, uh, you know, uh, Wells is obviously a touchstone. I mean, you completely nailed it from a young age, the, you know, the days of watching TV at 4am Wells, you know, it's something ab about him, you know, completely, you know, connected with me. And, um, and again, the, the trajectory of his career, ultimately, you know, starting out, within the studio system and getting funded for that uh, first brilliant feature. And then ultimately going, you know, in some way, punk rock with his later movies, financing them, them himself. Uh, you know, I think he, he laid it down, you know, he's the template. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, Timothy Carey, that's, that's an, you know, an obscure uh, choice, but brilliant, you know, he was, uh, you know, absolutely. I mean, I think he only has the one feature though, doesn't he? Or is right, there the more? world's greatest sinner. The great, the greatest sinner, sinner. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, amazing. And, um, you know, there are other actors. I mean, I think Dennis Hopper, you could probably throw in that, that lineage uh -huh. too, sure. you know, to, to, to a certain degree. I mean, certainly he was doing four higher, you know, gigs uh later on in his career but um definitely had uh you know had that grand obsession with you know uh film and independent film and you know i mean flawed as it is the last movie is 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 you know a batshit crazy you know uh fascinating piece of cinema um you know uh so i think he would certainly be another yeah one. uh you've also worked in uh 
some I, I did you work in any other soap operas other than days of our lives or was that the only one I uh, had little bit things in some of the New York soaps and, uh, you know, early, early on in my career, but, uh, God, yes. No, I, you know, I mean, talk about, you know, the true, uh, you know, disparities of my career, uh, that's, yeah, you know, I was, uh, was recurring on days of our lives for, uh, you know, a period there in the, in the early nineties. Uh, yeah, it's crazy. I look at, uh, I mean, it's like not only one of the longest running soap operas, but I think like one of the longest running television shows, period. <laughs> <laughs> it's been going on endlessly. And, uh, you know, the, the, uh, I mean, the amazing Finally thing off television, yeah. apparently. Yeah. I mean, you know, how maybe now streaming or something. Sure. However people consume it uh, these days, uh, you know, and eating whatever the equivalent to their TV dinner is, uh, <laughs> you know. um, but yeah, I remember I was playing this, you know, psychotic, you know, borderline psychotic bad guy. We were brought on to do some storyline to kill one of the leads who was, uh, in fact, um, going to be replaced by another actor. So we were just going to like just, you know, tear apart his face and he would come out of the hospital. Is this there was a new guy? There was some amazing thing. And and yeah, I remember I was um you know, borderline going to become maybe a regular, but you know, the key to that is the housewives of America must, you know, green light you as being, uh, you know, someone that they can ultimately fantasize about. And apparently I had just done too much bad shit. So, uh, the, uh, the head of the, you know, the head of days just cornered me at the craft service one day and go, goes, yeah, you're, uh, you're going to be killed by a SWAT team next Wednesday. <laughs> <laughs> so, Brutal. and in, clue, uh, in true low budget, so fashion, of course, the SWAT team is, you know, one guy with a plastic Uzi or whatever. I can't remember what it was, but uh, it was not a full Brian De Palma, you know, uh, set piece. Well, in that regard, I, you know, yeah, I'm sort of curious what your assessment is of the, the whole soap genre and what sort of impact it's had on your own creative projects, if any, uh, I'm specifically thinking about the way you employ, um, camp in your films. Uh, well, I mean, you know, uh, you know, that there is, you know, camp, I'm always a little, I'm, I'm always a little iffy, you know, on that term. Um, you know, it's difficult to define. Yeah, it is. It's very, very amorphous. Um, you know, I think there's, you know, ultimately, a bit much more harder edge kind of, you know, comedy bordering on dark in, in my stuff. Um, camp camp kind of always feels to me that it's, it's, you know, a little lighter and in more soft at the core. Um, but, um, you know, I mean, I think some, some of those elements, you know, can be, can be found in David Lynch's stuff too, you know? Um, yes. And, yeah, it's just uh, that I think of it as that slight sort of like over exaggeration. Yes, exactly. So I would definitely, uh, you know, I would definitely, you know, um, see see that connection. I mean, the you know the same kind of connection you know Lynch has towards uh, towards that style. Um, and you know, in terms of performance, I definitely come from. Um, that I mean, you mentioned Crispin Glover, which I think is you know definitely an interesting connection, or even Carrie and everyone going back to Wells. I mean, uh, 
you know, we live in a time now where it's definitely, I would say, supernaturalism. You know, it's just complete behavioral, you know, realism. Um, You know, people now coming out of just, you know, you know, being on TikTok or whatever these things are and just being, you know, supernatural in front of the camera, realistic. But, um, you know, for me, acting has always been that there is that side in which when it's a little juiced, when it's a little stylized and yet still coming from a real core, uh, that's where I, you know, that's where I get excited, you know, for me. And um, that line can go back to, sure, back to Wells or, you know, uh, something like Hopper in, in, uh, in Blue Velvet, you know, an early Kirk Douglas performance, you know, or something, you know, Crispin Glover, you know, I remember, being in Los Angeles when uh, the River's Edge first came out, you know, I was uh, friends with Daniel Roebuck, who who plays the the killer in that, and seeing uh, you know Glover's performance, you know, highly stylized, highly controversial at the time. People thought it was too much, way too over the top. Um, but uh, I, you know, I was blown away, and all my friends, we were like, "This is, you know, this is something new. It's different. It's pushing the edges. It's not." Um, you know, just that, um, just pure behavioral, just nat, you know, just naturalism. Right. Again, that's, I think that's something that sort of gets into the thing of challenging consciousness through breaking this conventional concept of authenticity, um, where it's like calling into a kind of direct questioning of the, the role of the actor itself and, and what it's portraying is this, you know, I mean, we know that we're watching something on screen that's fabricated these aren't this isn't a documentary right and um you know how far can you kind of stretch this this idea where people will accept it as a as a character and and have some you know feeling or emotional reaction to it but maybe take it away from a sort of conventional mode of like uh trying to authenticate some some persona well yeah absolutely i mean you know um you know something can happen when i mean you know, if you see, you know, Timothy Carey just, you know, just exploding out of a, a scene where everyone is kind of, you know, being somewhat realistic and, you know, somewhat within the bounds and then just making some just, you know, batshit intense choice, uh, it jolts you into just a new level, you know, of of, of uh, response, you know, to, to the character, to the scene, to everything. And, uh Um, you know, that's for me, what, uh, is when things get really exciting, you know? Um, and that was happening a great deal in a lot of the nineties, you know, the so-called great, you know, indie films of the nineties, they weren't all, you know, technically indie, but, um, yeah, I mean, I can remember seeing Jane Campion's first feature and being just knocked out. It was called Sweetie, and uh, the female lead of that uh, film, um, she was just amazing, just taking huge, you know, uh, home run swing acting choices and uh, just just being, you know, uh, you know, creating something something new on film, and that was amazing and. Uh, I would say another one would be, you know, something like David Thewlis and Naked, which was another touchstone film of the 90s that we were all, you know, um, just knocked out by. And um, yeah, it remains one, certainly one of the great, 
male performances of the last 50 years for me, just incredible and not something that I don't think he's ever gotten close to again, not because he's not brilliant, but just the, the part isn't there. Right. You know? Yeah. It seems like, um, the element of, of risk or maybe even danger is intimately tied with excitement. Like you can't have one without the other. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's, you know, that inspiration, that flash, you know, whatever is roiling inside the actor just comes out and explodes. And, uh, you know, uh, it, it truly does take it to, you know, to a different level. Um, you know, oftentimes you'll see kind of things being sort of kept within just, you know, almost like in sound or music, you know, there's a high end and a low end, you don't want, you know, you kind of want to keep it in the middle where you're not hitting the red zone, et cetera, and kind of keeping it within the safe, uh, you know, audio levels as it were. And, um, yeah, for me, it's, you know, with acting, uh, sometimes you, you, you know, you want to hit the red, you want to go outside of that. That's what's memorable. Right. Yeah. It's almost like, um, uh you know, you have this trajectory of um, modernism and the avant-garde, which always had a kind of like limited shelf life or expiration date built into it. Uh, But that doesn't mean necessarily, you know, pushing those limits, if you can frame it in that way, has to necessarily be be tied to that. You know, I mean, it's like... um, I think you you allude to uh, Dadaism, specifically in in Dark Ark, right? And, and yeah, and, and particularly the um, uh, Vicomte Loris is 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 sort of saying you know that he, he's uh, even even beyond the effort of art making itself, uh, but it's not you know he's not he doesn't go the other way and become this sort of like nihilist anti-artist i mean he still makes these works but then they're sort of burned uh or you know there's a, a sort of framing of of his activities as as a kind of appropriationism well yeah i mean that you know was sort of you know toying with that idea of of you know it was it was there certainly you know with the dadaists certainly you know punk rock certainly comes out of that there was a a Griel Marcus book called Lipstick Traces that sort of traced the, you know, punk rock and this, the Sex Pistols back to uh, the situationists, the Dadaists, you know, the, those turn to turn of the century revolutionaries. And, you know, that was a big part of some of the genesis of Dark Arc was that idea of in this highly commodified, you know, uh, lockdown culture what can, what can someone do that's, you know, truly, truly different, you know, um, and Viscount Laris, the, the character I play, played is, is, you know, just uh, utterly bored by, you know, the physical, the, 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 the physical visual world that's being, you know, created today. It's just not advertising, you know, et cetera, all this commodification. So he's creating these, you know, shutting down actually what he looks at you know, in terms of putting up, putting on blind glasses and only choosing to look at certain things, which is, of course, very, <laughs> very Dadaist in creating this alternate existence, you know, which, um, you know, uh, of course goes back to the Dadaist, but, it, you know, it was there in punk to a certain degree and those, those strange sweaty clubs, you know, an alternate reality was happening and you would come out 
into the the true reality of the time, which was, you know, they're just the banal 70s. And, uh, you know, it was, uh, you know, a completely different ballgame. So, um, yeah, this creation of an alternate, uh, an alternate reality, which has some, you know, it has some artistic component, but he has sort of gotten beyond that point of, you know, sort of even creating artifacts, artistic artifacts themselves, be it paintings or books of uh, art criticism for him. It's, it's uh, literally the olfactory sense of what he is choosing to look at and choosing to create sometimes or stage in front of his eyes. And uh, yeah, that's a, that's a next, a next level of, uh, of sort of, uh, you know, responding to the now. Yeah. Well, you said olfactory that just triggered for me, um, uh, uh, Huizman against nature, the character, what is it? Uh, Jean de Asante. Uh, yes, exactly. Is, you know, would be sort of proto uh, Dadaist, right? I think that's, that predates that. Was that, was that yes, kind of a touchstone no, for you? No, yeah, very, very well done. No, that was a, that was a, you know, serious touchstone, um, you know, uh, and even some of the, you know, some of the figures that, uh, that uh, predated Hoisman's. Um, and, you know, of course, Oscar Wilde is in there, you know, Dorian Gray to some degree has some elements of that too. Um, um, so, yeah, no, that's, uh, that's, you know, very good. That's exactly, you know, part of, part of the lineage. But for me, the interesting thing was to even, you know, take some of that and, and graft it onto at that time, it was the, you know, early 2000s uh, and a figure actually, tr- you know, trying to do something that in the modern, in the modern times, you know, when uh, basically what's exploding, the internet's exploding, everything, is, you know, is exploding to this point that we are today, where it's just an absolute uh, shit tsunami, shall we say, of <laughs> visual audio uh, olfactory elements just coming at us, uh, you know, and just undifferentiated and un, you know, with no filtering process whatsoever. And uh, for me, that was the interesting idea was, you know, for Viscount at, at, at that point in time to all of a sudden put this utterly strict filtering process on everything that came into his, his senses at the time when outside of his little, his self-created reality, uh, things were exploding. Right. I mean, it was the big, it was the big, you know, not necessarily the beginning, but the wave was, was, uh, starting to build, uh, shall we say. I I guess back to Evan's term, camp even though just meaning like the caricature or exaggeration um when i was watching dark arc uh it i want to put blinders on right um there's just too much shit that you have to stare at or hear that you have no choice um even more once again that for uh i was 2004 so almost 20 years later it's even worse Yes. No, I agree. I think yeah, that's pretty social media it is i mean it's you know social media was just kind of you know that train was just starting to chug out of the station, but, um, uh, it was, uh, you know, nowhere near where it's at now. Yeah. I would like to see Viscount, um, have to stare at Instagram filters. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, I, I like yes. to imagine sometime in the future, um, how many beautiful images for like a Thankfully, I don't think there's many. Well, there's probably more filters now, but there was that period where everybody was putting 
the horrible filters over every image right, on the internet. Right, right, right. So every, there's going to be no real image of like 2010, <laughs> right? Yes. No, it'll, it will all be mediated in some way with something in, something in front of it filtered. But uh, no, you're absolutely right. Viscount would put the blind glasses on and take a good slug of tincture of opium. <laughs> At the prospect of that, right? There's the scene where there's kind of a they're in the the opposing apartments, and uh, she Sarah Strange's character makes the call, uh, reports that she's just scrolling, flipping the channels on the the television set, you know, getting inundated mm-hmm. um, with all of these images, and Vicon responds by saying that he's doing the, the complete opposite, carefully selecting an image of her to to dwell upon but just wait coming down the pike there's going to be a lot more than flipping <laughs> through the television channels but you right. know, he, he says this comment about her just flipping through all these images and, and none of them will stick you know no, nothing is 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 going to be um right right one of these one of these pr- profound uh images charged images that will will last beyond the grave or something right? right well that's his thing is it just the you know the 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 you know the 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 mind can only take in certain, you know, a certain amount of images, you know, the, the tendrils, the tentacles, the synapses, you know, can only take in so much. And, uh, you know, um, that's why, for example, the Mona Lisa, we've all seen it so many times that it's there permanently. You know, we can conjure it up in our mind's eye right now just by saying it, but so many other things we, uh, you know, I mean, Try, try to, you know, try to conjure up any, uh, a- any image from yesterday, you know, I mean, the, th- you know, the thousands of images that you saw or whatever, scrolling or, or, you know, t- doing what anyone does, laptops, smartphones, um, and, uh, nothing pops out, you know, um, the, the storage space just isn't there. So, yeah, I mean, in a obviously borderline insane way, he is, uh, he's trying to control the deluge, <laughs> Which I, I guess if we took that thinking with audio and we started thinking about how um, how much like being able to conjure music up. I had a friend say, I never need to hear the Rolling Stones ever again. I can just imagine what it sounds like. Wow. Okay. <laughs> because of how much it's played on the radio. Right. right. Um, you don't even need personally. You don't you yourself don't need to listen to these things because everybody else is already doing that work for you. Right. Right, right. You've heard, um, like, you, you can just play Satisfaction in your head right now without hearing, which um, brings me to a question with uh, <laughs> the last big thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, thinking of, um, do, you, do you keep up at all with any modern music or um, any modern alternative music? Here, here, here and there, I mean, certainly, but, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't say, you know, I, I have an omnivorous knowledge, but certainly here and there, things pop up or people recommend things. Um, but uh, what what are you thinking of? I, I was thinking of how much worse um, the music business has gotten since the last big thing. Uh, my background, I, I was in, I, me and Evan both played in various bands and um, we really connected over, uh, he, he turned me on to the last big thing and I thought it was, it, it really, I, I related to it a ton because I, I had a job in music PR for a period of time. And <laughs> oh, wow. I okay. only could, I only could handle, <laughs> I could only handle it for six months and said, no, I'm never doing this again. I'd rather hang right. myself. <laughs> because, right. Right. Yeah, um, 
So I was like really living it for a second. And I, I think it's actually worse than that worse now um I, I, maybe the caricature that you did is actually like reality <laughs> right no I, I you know you're obviously you know a bit more no, nose to the to the grindstone on it than i am but it's it sounds absolutely correct i mean uh and of course you know the gigantic specter that hovers over this whole line of conversation is ai right i mean that's you know <laughs> Just think about that next level. I mean, you're talking about, you know, uh, you know, filters on TikTok videos. Well, you know, AI is is, you know, it's the beginning of just an exponential leap in terms of all of these things that we're talking about being approximated, you know, approximated to what, you know, 70, 80 percent, you know, uh, accuracy. And, you know, I mean, this is uh, <laughs> the beginning of a whole new level. Um, uh, and, um, you know, I mean, like I say, the, the, these, the wave was just kind of beginning on uh, last big thing, you know, and, and, you know, I was sensing it at the time that there was something, something was kind of going on. Um, but, uh, you know, technology sort of, you know, leapt into the void and just accelerated it. Yeah. I think it's great. There's this, if you look back, there's like a New York times review of the film, uh, which, which, uh, has some comment about how it's like not going to age well, uh, for one reason or another. And it's like, actually, I can't think of a single other film that's like aged better than this, this movie. It's, um... Well, yeah, well, thank you. I mean, that's, you know, others, others have, you know, uh, have, have pointed that out again. I, I leave it to, you know, anyone's take good, bad, or, or indifferent, uh, they're entitled to, but, um, you know, what I can't say about, you know, what I was sensing was, you know, part of it was, you know, Reality TV was another wave that hit after, and what one was beginning to sense, you know, even in Last Big Thing era, it was like zines, you know, that was a big part of it, was this whole kind of, you know, not um, not sort of trying to look at, you know, the culture at large in some way, you know, in engaged, interesting, critical way, but just starting to begin to create your, you know, your own little reality, you know, your reality TV show, as it were, uh, which let's face it is, you know, smartphones and what, everything that's happening, TikTok videos, it's, it's now we're getting into a place where, of course, everyone is the, is the star of their, of their own reality, right? And so that, that was beginning in, you know, in in the early '90s when I started to develop the script, I, you know, I was sort of vibing on on uh, on some of those elements. You know, um, so yeah, that was uh, you know definitely. But you know, technology was the big you know was the big thing that was kind of missing in terms of just that massive, massive exponential escalation. Yeah, there's the quote in the last big thing of. Um the idea being commodified and then the magazine coming out. And, and now that's like, right. Two weeks or something. Two we yeah. Two weeks. And, right. and then now it's, now we're down to like 0.2 seconds. Right. Yeah. <laughs> we have, we have predictive AI that can, it's, fra uh, it's fractional. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Well, right. Well, well, it's like the update on the, uh, I, I forget who, who kind of switched the phrase, but it was like, uh, you know, the, 
a play on the Warhol idea of 15 minutes of fame, where it was like, no, the reality today is that uh, everyone is famous to 15 people. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, that's exactly what I'm talking about is that, uh, you know, that move towards, you know, um, you know, the friendship circle, even if they're online, you know, replaces the culture, right? Mm-hmm. Right. It's a complete echo chamber. But that's the thing. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, the interesting thing about all my movies, is, you know, even Scammerhead has that is just how quickly that, that film, which essentially took, you know, almost eight years of shooting was galvanized at the beginning by, you know, part of it was me just the very beginning of me seeing people just pop up with those headsets, you know, that were yeah. sort of, you know, curled around to people's mouths. This was like right, an, the Bluetooth. Yeah, yeah the, it's 2004. Literally, I started developing that script. And of course, you know, over eight years of filming, etc., all of a sudden the smartphone hit and uh, it just it explodes it and goes to a, a different level. And these films almost become these weird time capsules of just that of these technologies and impulses in their, in their infancy. You know? Right. Right. Like shoving the, uh, when the, the heavy shoves the flip phone in his mouth. Right. Uh, <laughs> yeah, literally eating, one. literally eating your cell phone. Yes. Yeah, so. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. Sort of thinking of the, the, the uh, solipsistic escapism. I, uh, we should definitely talk about your, most recent short, which is um, yet to be released, uh, Mississippi Bloodslide. Oh, right. And uh, which which is is like a solely solipsistic, and well, maybe hearkening back to Vertman in a way where it's just like you you essentially only see this this one character, the protagonist. Um, yes, that's correct. That's good. Yes. Also, kind of going back to sort of another kind of commentary on the the modern phenomenon of this obsession with authenticity and so forth, um, albeit within a different musical milieu or tradition than, say, punk, um, but um, one that, you know, contains a similar, somewhat rigid or restrictive mythos, uh, which is like this idea of the Mississippi Delta Blue. I mean, it's, it's like almost absurdly laughable that I imagine that there are still people kind of like, uh, what's the band in um, the Terry Zweigoff movie, Ghost World? Oh, um, right, that, right. Like the, <laughs> the blues band, but, you know, deep down Southern authentic Delta blues, you know, like, right. Um, right. But, it, but it's the same thing where this, this it's just this sort of like fetishized. Uh, I mean, I, I realize people, anyone who's listening to this is like not seeing the film yet. Um, right. What are they talking? What the hell yeah, are they talking but, well, about? But yes. Maybe I should set this up. Uh, <laughs> you, you, you could maybe describe some uh, the film to some degree. Oh uh, well, just this uh, character Jed Gintland, played by myself, who is uh, living somewhere in the deep south and um, has recently been released from an institution. We don't know exactly what jail. Uh, a mental institution we don't know, um, and uh, has decided to pick up the, the guitar and become, in his words, the greatest um, slide guitar player in the world, um, having just literally just picked up a guitar <laughs> for the first time. And uh, of course, being from the South, as you say, is just steeped in that, uh, you know, the, the sort of legendary 
blues tradition and decides that he is uh, going to be a slide player um, and uh, buys a buys a slide and then gradually starts fixating on just you know it's uh, it's it's not the fact that he. <laughs> cannot play and has just picked up a guitar, but it's the slide that's the problem with him uh, uh, becoming the greatest player of all time. And so he starts trying to create his own slide, uh, ultimately uh, creating a hollow one and pouring uh, Mississippi River <laughs> water into the slide uh, from Memphis and then going down to New Orleans and getting some New Orleans water and uh, trying that out. And that doesn't quite do the trick he's still shit <laughs> and uh and then yes it it uh, escalates in a somewhat disturbing way with him uh poking his finger with the string of a guitar and siphoning some blood out and mixing it with the uh the mississippi water and uh going off his meds and pounding some uh, bourbon and uh <laughs> going on this insane uh it almost becomes a bit punk rock and not even uh not even blues at that point, but uh, in his own mind, he's breaking through uh, to some new level of uh, genius. And uh, of course, it's caterwauling nonsense, but um, uh, mm-hmm. it's all about the Mississippi blood slide. But yeah, I think of, of this is is sort of like this similar, like modern condition of of just you know, it's it's like the um, it's not this you know mysterious endeavor of of like going into one's consciousness and having all of this, your, your, your assumptions challenged and challenging what's and a, and a, and a lifetime path, you know, a decision to just go into this journey, but rather just, you know, how can I, uh, how can I appropriate the authenticity quickly and (laughs) and brutally? It's, it's it's consumerist, right? It's like, uh, well, you know, even if he's, he's not buying the water, uh, (laughs) But well, he purchases the slide. Yeah, um, yeah. But but um, it's it's the it's sort of like grafting on the same mode of thinking. Where if I just kind of take the pill and I put the water in, and that doesn't work. So yeah. maybe I'll take some of my blood. Um, <laughs> right. and, and now I can kind of buy my way into heaven. Right. Know? Exactly. Exactly. Um, and you know. Uh, what place Mr. Gintlin is at the very end is up for you to decide. <laughs> I, I wouldn't expect seeing him at your local uh, open mic night anytime <laughs> soon, but uh, maybe it's a, a loose connection or something. But I, I'm thinking like the Scammerhead character. What is the main main character's name? Uh, Silas Breeze. Silas Breeze, of course. Um, I mean, it's like there's almost this, a self awareness. I, I mean, it's like he's playing into this, but. But at the end, he's he's asked the question, you know, what what was the point of this? And he understands. Uh, I mean, he's kind of a Bernie Madoff Ponzi scheme figure to the max. Um, uh, but you know, he's, it's just the response. You know, two words, just pulling shit. You know, it's like right, right, <laughs> right. I mean, the the act itself is is the justification, right? Um, and. Uh, you know, uh, you know. Again, I mean, as with all the, in this case, he's certainly the lead character and the protagonist. But there's much, you know, there is also a gray area with him in the sense that he ultimately is not full Madoff, in my opinion. But again, where he falls on the on the good to bad spectrum is is up to anyone's interpretation. But um, he's actually 
at a certain point up until his last project, the the uh, Albatraz, the, the the fake island on, on on Lake Michigan, he's actually trying to create these projects in some way, <laughs> grandiose and fucked as they may be. He's trying to cre- you know he's trying to just yap them into existence somehow. And uh, yeah, there's a weird you know. There's, you know, there's some weird nobility at times in that, but um, he tips off, you know, he tips off the fence into the other side. And certainly by the end, it's no, it's, it's, you know, a complete scam at the end. But um, again, to what degree ultimately with a Madoff, it's 100% about the money. You know, he wants the money with a, with a Silas Brees, there is that element, but it's a little more complicated because if you really just want the money, then uh, then you you become made up. You just go that route. Right. You, know? right. you don't try to create any strange, you know, thing like the water tower bars in New York. I mean, you know, <laughs> you know, you uh, you just uh, you know immediately create the Ponzi scheme and just figure out how money makes money rather than uh, you know creating some sort of twisted artifact. So. Um, you know, I think he's he he's a little more complex, you know, in terms of uh, in terms of where he falls, and isn't very much a noir figure in that sense. I mean, that was conscious in my part to sort of situate him in that in that lineage. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that film, uh, more than any other, definitely embodies the. It's a, it's a noir, uh, like more than money than any other film. I think you've you've made. Yeah. Yes. I mean, hopefully there's, you know, dark comedy as all the films, I, I think, you know, attempt to have some in it. And it's, I think, in there too. But yeah, you're right. It, it certainly was an attempt to, uh, um, you know, use noir in, in, uh, in an updated way, but I hope in a, in a bit of a different way, you know. Um, you know, my, my intention was to not, you know, with a lot of sort of, quote, neo-noirs, you just get the you know, the superficial visual trappings, you know, the Venetian blinds, et cetera, et cetera. And this was more about um, imagining that kind of figure, but in uh, in a modern global context, you know, uh, visually, et cetera, you know. So, uh, um, you know, it's happening. There are certainly some nighttime scenes that are, that are noirish, more in a just natural light uh, location way, but... Uh, also this sort of global visual daylight approach to mm-hmm. yeah I and mean, think about like um uh you know his his motivation or enjoyment uh for pulling shit is like very different from this the typical idea of like the venture capitalist or ponzi scheme type um where uh, they might actually have some kind of psychological or moral justification for doing doing whatever it is they're doing. Like, oh, you know, I'm uh, ultimately benefiting uh, this oppressed group of people, or that, you know. But um, uh, for him, that's that's like nowhere in the equation. It's like it is it is a pure enjoyment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Of, of like he's he's just like riding riding the tiger yes you know just pinwheeling around spinning all these plates simultaneously how many more plates can i spin etc cetera, etc cetera, all in the cause of just you know getting 
this project uh, going, but they just collapse with just alarming regularity. But immediately a new plate just starts spinning again, and uh, the dervish continues his dance. Yeah. Right? But the, the funny thing is, they're all really good ideas. Like, well, thank you. I did. <laughs> I did spend. Uh, I did spend a long, long time, like literally years, uh, trying to come up with these ideas. I didn't want them to be, uh, you know, just some just lame ass. All right, he's got to do a bar, you know, create a bar for this consortium that's going to fund him and then all right whatever some just paris hilton s bar in vegas no that's not gonna you know needs to be a real idea of a, a cool strange bar and and uh you know i wouldn't sort of proceed on until i had some idea that i thought was you know somewhat uh, somewhat different and somewhat interesting and that stretched out a long time so yeah you've definitely nailed it that wasn't just cooked up you know you know yeah, I mean, they're all things I would love to see in in actualized. Right. Yeah, exactly. Which again makes them even more sort of you know tragic is that you know some of these are not bad ideas you know, um, but uh, you know there's just that inherent uh, tragic overreaching flaw that just doesn't allow him in classic noir manner to uh, to uh, push it towards completion. So kind of coming off of this like wildly ambitious, I mean, to do something at a sort of underworld level of like Scammerhead, I don't know if there's any other uh, example that I can think of, of, of like a film in recent years that, you know, just this. No, I don't think there uh, is. Global international film, uh, really, really self-financed and so forth. Um, but, well, uh, I had my, I had my, yeah. you know, all, all of my usual team and, and producers, um, uh, you know, on board and they're, you know, intrinsic to me, uh, pulling, pulling off these, these movies. Um, but yeah, it is absolutely, uh, you know, just a, 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 you know, underground independent, uh, you know, off the grid, uh, uh, indie that was just shot uh yeah for for way longer than uh than it should have been um you know but uh you know part of it was uh part of it was premeditated i i definitely had um the idea to you know there was uh, there was this sort of um kind of idea of of you know independent films and the, and this was certainly the case with my first two was the you know the classic two week shoot then with a, a weekend of pickups you know that was how you did it um and also there's this whole you know kind of thing with you know people who talk about independent films who just stick to, you know stick to one location you could do something cheaply and just you know hone in on one location and i've always kicked against that I, i've always thought you know i mean it can certainly work if you've got a great visual approach or idea to a, a location but um you always should, you know, try to just bring something uh, interesting and new visually to the table, even if you don't have that much money. Um, so my thing was just to go the opposite of the one location film. I mean, the the globe is location, and uh, what turned it around technologically was just the the advent of the those smaller HD cameras in the the mid two thousands that had a good picture and. Um, I was able to, you know, take around the globe and we were able to, you know, fly to various cities sometimes when I had a crew, sometimes myself, um, and get, uh, an amazing, you know, an amazing look to it. Um, so I figured, yeah, something like that could be an interesting approach 
to an indie where you're just kind of in constant production, but just shooting every few weeks or every few months, even over the course of three or four years. And, and, uh, um, but of course it doubled and even went beyond doubled, you know, so the three or four turned into almost eight and, uh, um, but it became its own kind of journey, you know, uh, the, the, just the extent that we shot almost became just part of, uh, you know, part of the being of the film. Yeah. And it certainly has a look, which is probably a, maybe a, a pragmatic consideration for, uh, maybe not jumping through the legal loop loopholes or paying the piper to, to kind of, uh, shoot legally in some areas where you may be the cameras at a distance to shot covertly, right? Yeah, we shot, uh, you know, we only used permits, uh, as I recall, one day, which was when we shot in Las Vegas in the middle of the Vegas Boulevard, that sequence where we, which was surprisingly cheap. It was in the hundreds of dollars and we had to shut both, both, both lanes of Vegas going in and out of Vegas. Need to say the gamblers coming into Vegas were not happy with us, but, uh, um, but that was the only uh, that yeah that was the only permits we worked for. Everything else was just consciously yeah done uh, sans permit uh, punk rock guerrilla style. Uh-huh. I love that Vegas just makes everything cheap to attract gamblers. For, you know, <laughs> right. yeah, and you, you feature the um, the bar where you can get the the dollar shot and the dollar beer too. Oh, right. Which is now gone, or I think it's been updated and I'm sure. Uh, Yes. The beers are probably 10, 10 bucks now. And, uh, yeah. Um, but yeah, that was the old, uh, the gold spike. And, uh, I think we stayed, I think we stayed there too. And, you know, shot in the bar. So it was uh, a combination of, uh, you know, location, bunk and bar. (laughs) Incredible. So, you know, coming up, kind of coming off of this impossibly ambitious endeavor, um, were you kind of prompted to return to the short film format as, as a kind of re- relief from that? Uh, that? Yeah, that, that, yes. Yeah, that could be part of it. Yes, that could be part of it. You know, just something that was a little, uh, you know, a little simpler and, and, uh, you know, get the, uh, get the machinery going back again and, uh, you know, something that could be done in, you know, a sane amount of time, um, you know, just to know that I could actually start something that isn't going to take a decade is it's good to know. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, do you think it's still possible to go for a feature, uh, in the current situation or is it like increasingly difficult? What are the restrictions and so forth? Well, uh, you know, I think it is still possible. I mean, I certainly, you know, I still have some, you know, threads that I'm cooking with, but uh, I, I would say it's, you know, I mean, things have become much more challenging, you know, without question. I think everyone, it seems to me, is in the same boat with streaming, etc. The You know, the venue, you know, more about how to how to get a film out there into the world, uh, et cetera. Um, all of that's, yeah, all of that's, you know, massively changed. Um, you know, I mean, I was lucky enough to be part of that nineties, uh, you know, that's, uh, eulogized or euthanized wave of nineties filmmaking, uh, where, you know, uh, even a film is, is, you know, offbeat in Strange's last big thing. I mean, ultimately we got a theatrical release, you know, it took a, it took a year or two, but we ended up playing, you know, 40 markets. They struck like seven 
six or seven 35 millimeter prints. And, you know, it went out there. And, uh, you know, everyone that I know has said, told me that, you know, last big thing would never, you know, it would just never be released now. So yeah, it is, it's much harder. I mean, I was, you know, we're all thankful that we got in under the wave, those of us who, you know, were, uh, were making films then, but, um, yeah, without question, it's, um, it's more challenging. There's, there's no question yeah. about that. Yeah. I remember it, I, I actually saw, um, the last big thing at Angelica in New York and must've been, was it 98? Oh, wow. Yeah. It was 98. Yeah. Yeah. I was there. I was there. I remember being there for a month, month or month and a half leading up to that screening. Yeah. Oh no shit. Yeah. It was uh, yeah. my brother who's a real cinephile. He had, uh, turned me on to it. I mean, I knew it was, which was great just knowing, absolutely nothing about the film going into it. And uh, I think we were some of the only people in the theater at the time and uh, just walked. I I mean, I felt like there's very few films that I've, I felt like um, it wasn't, it wasn't like just a movie. I had experienced a phenomenon. (laughs) Wow. In a really genuine sense. And, and, uh, and we, and then we would try to, tell everyone that we encountered after that about the movie and it like no one would believe us <laughs> um and of course you know this is like sort of pre-internet still uh so there wasn't really any way i think later it maybe started to show up on like uh independent film channel or was it showtime or yeah it's it, yeah it was uh, they sold it to uh, sold it to showtime and um it had a long run you know for seven or eight years on and off on Showtime and then the other channels, movie network, independent film, you know, channel, et cetera. So yeah, a lot of people were, were exposed to it that way. But um, yeah, I mean, just, you know, whatever, you know, little cult attention the film has got, it's sort of a a function of just all those different phases of releasing the film. You know, if, if like now it's just spit out, you know, quickly once and then joins the uh you know the the flotsam and jets and you know nile river of content that is just rolling along uh there's no chance for it to stick whereas you know just that longer kind of phased element of getting a film out there which last big thing benefited from um allows you know those those people that uh, you know dig the film to you know form their own little kind of cadre of supporters and uh but it starts with, yeah, getting it out theatrically, you know, I mean, uh, that's one of the things, you know, I mean, uh, you know, I feel terrible for filmmakers today that don't have that, you know, element of, you know, talking about things that have changed of just the press. I mean, I'm sure where you guys live, you know, the alternative magazines, et cetera, in your, your city, like every city is they're just down to either not there or just two pages of advertising, et cetera, you know, um, newspapers, magazines, all of these things were in amazing way. And there were amazing writers writing for all those, those, uh, venues. And, uh, you know, the fact that that's been just gouged out almost completely makes things way harder. I mean, I remember at that Angelica time, you know, sitting at being at one, uh, being at one of those newspaper stands in New York and almost having that classic, you know, 
as with New York plays, you know, being at Sardi's and staying up till 6 a.m. and cracking in the New York Times and all those magazines. And, you know, we did a version of that with the last big thing where you just cracked, you know, the New York Times, the Village Voice. They were all, you know, physical uh, uh, papers and magazines at the time. Newsday, you know, Time Out New York, all, you know, the New York Press was great. There were a lot of great writers writing for that. And I remember being interviewed there and there was a really nice, insightful review there. So you had, you know, just that, you know, deluge of print attention and uh, that's kind of gone now, you know. And uh, so that's kind of unfortunate that, you know, people don't really, uh, you know, experience that anymore. And it also just sets that kind of hook for, you know, that little fan base to start to, you know, to start to, you know, build itself. Um, but yeah, reading reviews was a big part of how we all got turned on to films and everything, you know. I, I am younger than Evan, so unfortunately I didn't, I didn't get a chance to see it in theaters. Um, as a, fi- a five-year-old, that, that wasn't good. <laughs> <laughs> um, a few things might have uh, floated above your head. But, yeah, uh, I, I probably wouldn't have understood all of it. Um, yeah, yeah, I definitely <laughs> saw it at the right age. I think I was like 17 or 18, so, so you know, could, oh. could just sort of start to grasp uh, what was mm-hmm. going on here. Um, I was going to say the, the press machine has even gotten worse, too, because I don't think many people get on websites anymore younger people just click apps right so it's even more streamlined where it's all ai choosing what they can even see right exactly yeah Uh, no that definitely you know i mean that's that's part of the problem um yeah because that sort of becomes part of your i mean for me as a film goer i mean it's it's becomes part of your own idiosyncratic journey is how you stumble on these films, you know, how you find them. And there used to be a a lot of different ways, you know, that that could happen. And now I think it's, um, you know, you know, you're right. I mean, the, the algorithms have kind of taken over a bit and uh, it's, uh, it's definitely harder. It's also interesting with um, independent filmmakers or independent artists of any type. Now it's, it's kind of disheartening that a large group of them act you know they're actually while they're creating thinking of how to take advantage of ai algorithms right where <laughs> which is which is absolutely right. bizarre um right I, you know i've heard of people go, well we can't post that on whatever social media platform because the way the the quality of the image or whatever or if you're uploading music to spotify for instance you actually there's all these rules with how text can be laid out on an album because they don't want to hurt their own brand integrity for their oh, platform. Wow. Yeah. So it's interesting that there's AI that artists are intent or I'll say artists in quotes, um, right. people making, well, I will, I'll use the modern content creators, um, that content mm, creators right. are, uh, considering or actually influenced by AI, and, and but then those people are also concerned about AI making art and replacing them. <laughs> but it gets. Uh, I actually am not. I, I don't know. Europe. I, I'm curious. I'm curious of your opinion of AI replacing art because I, I personally think 
it's it's not going to happen. It'll replace the things that should be replaced. Uh, well, I think yeah, I think that's a good point. I, I think that's that's the salient uh, salient point. Um, you know, for me, I mean, again, not being you know completely up on it, but it seems to me that it's going to replace those things that are already sort of co-opted and commodified and do, you know, a spectacular job doing it, you know, um, you know, the, you know, we talked about the the sort of middle range of music, you know, just kind of existing audio wise within the, within the correct uh, uh, levels. And I think that kind of thing is, you know, they're going to go to town on it, you know, and there's going to be no way to, uh, you know, any individual to compare with that. And, and I think certainly indie film, you know, ideally goes back to, you know, to that element that was happening in the nineties, which was, you know, the sweet generous element of all those films is what excited, you know, me and everyone else that was coming up in the early nineties. Each week, a different kind of film would come down the pike that just seemed, you know, as Evan talked about his very nice response to, you know, the last big thing, this world unto itself, sweet, generous, just new, created, you know, from its own soil, um, you know, a naked or something simple like, you know, a gas food lodging or, you know, um, uh, Jane Campion's Sweetie, each one of these, you know, these films were all just coming, you know, seemed like every few weeks um out of nowhere and they were all different in, in their own way and um it seems to me that that is now more than ever with ai what needs to happen to differentiate because you know it's those elements outside the accepted lines that are you know going to be uh you know how art continues you know certainly how interesting independent film continues um What's happening within the middle, you know, your average kind of, you know, commodified, you know, genreized kind of cinema, AI is going to take care of that. I mean, it's it's almost pointless to, you know, try to do that. I, you know, I can't imagine that, you know, um, there's there's, you know, really any point in, in uh, you know, trying to take down or take on, uh, you know that machine i'm actually looking forward to it um because i don't want people i don't want people to wake up i don't i don't know anybody who would have a soul who would wake up and as a child and go i really want to make movies like michael bay or i really want (laughs) to i really want to make um a middle of the road marvel movie (laughs) yeah exactly you know you know, if that's your goal, I mean, just, yeah, you know, plug in AI, but you know, again, the, the, the studios are going to take care of that, you know, they will be, uh, they will be far ahead of you and far beyond you on all those levels. And, um, um, yeah. And, you know, certainly a version of that will happen with music too. I mean, you, you know, so, you know, a song is going to have, you know, to actually stick out and be something that we would call interesting and maybe art is going to have to really be, utterly unique and idiosyncratic and have its own, you know, uh, you know, uh, thumbprint, um, that's going to be more, uh, more important than ever because your average, you know, pop hits of the day, you know, they're going to be, they can be cooked up by AI, you know, I mean, it's not, you know, it's not, uh, you know, it's not that, uh, you know, you're going to be able to fight that, you know, now more than ever, you're going to have to go into those, you know, 
other zones. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I could see. Um, I guess. Well, purple haired girl is a uh, AI song. <laughs> you, <laughs> that's a 100%. good AI song. Is, yeah, that could that could be a tick that could be a TikTok. Purple yeah. girl is like meta. AI. Exactly. <laughs> you've actually you've you've totally nailed it. That's you know way before AI. That is how I was conceiving it. What is the most you know, not, you know, base hit, hit, you know, it's not even a home run. It's like, this is an absolute, you know, double. That's just, I, I love unleashing that song on, on people of a certain mind who have a sort of, you know, like perverse, maybe masochistic uh, attraction to like something way you're describing of that. Nature. In, in the, it's like uh, that song just like, uh, becomes like this curse in their <laughs> life or <laughs> you know there's no escape right <laughs> yeah you know i mean it's that classic thing where just everyone is just sitting on the subway just humming it to themselves with just their eyes rolled up into their heads they don't even know what they're singing but uh it's uh the worm has been implanted in some cronenbergian way well i, I just said uh maybe before departing um uh well, not to, to say get it in a more positive note, because I actually think what we're talking about, you know, maybe maybe leads to something as an unintended consequence could lead to something very positive. But uh, I, 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 thought, I would hope so. Yes, uh, I have a short list of uh, some of your amusing exploits that I'd love to hear more about. Uh, starting with an apparently infamous night at Club Insomnia in Berlin, <laughs> which you reference in the song "A Gog and a Gast." Oh my goodness! Uh, you know. I can't go there. Let us just say the, the let us just say the Germans have their fetishes. <laughs> <laughs> say no more. Say no more. Yeah. Uh, okay. Okay. Here's another one. Uh, I, I, I was told, well, uh, we have a mutual friend, one of your producers, uh, Brendan. Um, yes. Uh, it sounds like Brendan uh, being naughty. Yes. Yes. Being a very naughty boy. Uh, you told me that you once commandeered a film set limo off the set of of what may have been uh, Puppet Master Four, <laughs> and <laughs> and got it to drive you through the uh, uh, Carpathian Mountains. Ah, no, it, it wasn't a, a limo, but uh, actually, it was a um, uh, a bla- kind of a black Mercedes, you know, partial partial limo, um, and that was uh-huh. that was a uh, my goodness, that was probably the late nineties. It was. Um, one of those straight-to-video uh, kind of kids' horror movies directed by my friend Jeff Burr, who uh, recently passed away, um, very sadly, a great, fantastic guy. And um, I, I apologize to interrupt real quick. Uh, Jeff Burr is actually from uh, my hometown. Really? Well, he's from jo- uh, northern Georgia. Um, yeah, Dalton, Georgia. Oh, wow. That's where wow. I'm from. Yeah, oh, no shit. yeah. He yes. did Texas Chainsaw Massacre three. He's the most successful filmmaker from Dalton, Georgia. Just had to say that. Well, that's no, that's fantastic. Um, you know, Jeff was just an amazing guy, an amazing champion of of indie film, of my work, and there's a whole large crew of people that are kind of the Jeff Burr sort of acting contingent and. Uh, uh, we performed in some of his movies. I played the, 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 the lead heavy in this and it was, uh, 
it was filmed in Bucharest, Romania, and uh, I was playing some sort of I think the character was Lieutenant something in just this rogue American middle military guy coming up with this, this technology of like uh, x-ray vision technology. It was some riff on, you know, the man with the x-ray eyes. And um, I remember at the time, it was the late 90s, it was, you know, a few years after Ceausescu had fallen and I was given this outfit that literally I was wearing these these groin high um, leather military boots that were worn by like one of Ceausescu's guys, his, one of his key, you know, um, captains who was like literally shot in a firing squad in these boots. There was still like dried blood in the bottom of the boots <laughs> that I was putting on. And I'm like going, Whoa, they were, you know, I'm like, you know, that's sort of a, that's sort of a disturbing, uh, legacy to this costume. And, you know, uh, a little, Soap and water would have been nice to rub the rub that out, but um, uh, Bucharest was amazing. So yeah, um, I you know Jeff uh, greatly enjoyed. I had one long day where I had like eight pages of dialogue um, spewing this this man's villainy in this sort of uh, low budget Bond like lair, and uh, Jeff was extremely happy with my work. So he hired a uh, uh, this black kind of uh, smaller. Um, limo Mercedes with a, a driver in full black suit and, uh, you know, a peaked cap who just pulled up at my hotel and said, uh, you know, uh, I'm going to drive you to the Carpathians. So we went up into uh, the Carpathians up to Castle Braun, the, uh, the castle that you've probably seen, uh, you know, uh, on in pictures and images where the, the historical Vlad Tepes had whatever, lived there for a couple of weeks, but it was, uh, it was amazing. But yeah, I pulled up in this, <laughs> in this small village in this black Mercedes that the villagers had <laughs> never seen before. And I just like get out. And I, I just literally <laughs> felt like I was, I was in some bad straight to video movie about Dracula <laughs> reincarnated and, uh, showing up as this, uh, this American dude in a black Mercedes. But, uh, but it was, uh, yeah, it was an amazing trip. Um, I was also informed that you and your crew used to hang at the Hollywood Boozers joint uh, Bordners and have you know, run into some various characters, including Lawrence Tierney, uh, who specifically was somebody that always struck me as being uh, an especially nefarious or terrifying figure. I was wondering if you could <laughs> recount some of some of the details of those exploits. Sure, I, I have a I have a, a, a Larry Tierney story for sure. Um, there was a. Uh, we all used to hang out there. Jeff was actually part of a uh, part of that crew, uh, um, uh, a huge group of us, and we used to just shut down Bordners every night. And one night, um, uh, Larry came in. You know, he'd been drinking. It was about midnight, and we were at this table. There was four of us. I was sitting across from Larry, and there was this other guy who was like this. He kind of thought he looked like Clint Eastwood, and he just came town and he would just sleep on the floor of this character who used to play piano at Michelli's, this really large guy who used to let these actors sleep on his floor. And um, he came in and they sort of got into this bitch fight where they're yelling at each other and Larry was in the middle. And this this pianist who is sort of this huge kind of Sydney Green Street-like figure and just totally not violent at all, just got so enraged that he actually threw a right and instead of hitting 
the cowboy, he clocked Tierney like right in the oh, right shit. in the jaw. And Tierney just looked up and just goes, What the fuck? And Sydney Greenstreet immediately just squealed and just bolted out of Borners. Larry just gets up, grabs me, and just goes, Who the fuck is that? And pulls me out and we start running after him. And uh, so I went through the alleys of Hollywood with Larry Tierney and I, I, I kind of knew the Holy direction. Shit. Yeah. I, I kind of knew the direction the other guy was going to go. And so I go, I'll, I'll try to save his ass. And I pointed Larry in the, the opposite <laughs> direction. And uh, yeah, I spent like an hour just going down streets with Tierney huffing, puffing and getting more pissed off at me for not leading him to his, uh, <laughs> to his prey. And uh it was an amazing night. It was very sketchy. And finally, we just staggered back into Bordner's and, uh, you know, wound out buying Tierney a, another drink and just calming him down. But um, yes, uh, yes, I was involved in a in a in a foot chase, a noirish foot chase at 1 a.m. with Larry, T- 70 year old Larry Tierney uh, in, in Hollywood. Uh, well, if that doesn't get the noir in your DNA, I don't know what will. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I was, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I was, uh, I was Timothy Carey to his tyranny. <laughs> nice. That moment. Uh, speaking of legendarily gruff character actors, uh, what was your experience like working with um, directing and acting alongside the late Alex Rocco? Uh, oh, well, a- Rocco, as he liked to be called, was incredible. Uh, an amazing guy, an amazing actor. We spent uh, three days with him in, uh, and again, you, you mentioned, you know, us not using permits. This was, this was a classic, like a few years into the Scammerhead shoot, we, we had to shoot in Beverly Hills near the house where uh, Bugsy Siegel was shot. And we actually got a, the very beginning of um, the, um, you know, when you rent a, when you, uh, Airbnb, you know, had just started. So we got an Airbnb like house on the opposite side of Wilshire. And of course we were going to film for three days with Alex Rocco with, we didn't even tell them that we were going to film. <laughs> there was someone living in the, the other side of this house. And we were like, it's just permits are going to be through the roof in Beverly Hills. We got to like, uh, squeak this off and we can't tell Rocco. So it was sketchy going in. Um, but uh, he was amazing. I had actually um, planned for that role to be Kirk Douglas. I was a huge Kirk Douglas, Kirk Douglas fan. And for years on and off, we were trying, me and my producers were trying to figure out ways to get at Douglas. We had certain connections with one of his sons. And, you know, a couple times me and uh, Mitch Mayer, one of my producers, just showed up outside Douglas's house in Beverly Hills and just waiting for him to pull up with the, you know, with his caretaker or whatever. Um but gradually it became apparent we, we just, we couldn't, you know, we couldn't nail down Douglas. And um, so I had a long list of uh, other, uh, other actors that, that I was thinking about and Rocco was on the list. And then Mitch Mayer, my producer, really pushed uh, Rocco through. He was like, you got to take a second look at Rocco. I was a little worried because of his age, um, because of a plot, a plot point in the film, you know, that gets revealed. He had to be really old, like in his mid eighties. And I think he was probably early mid, his mid seventies at the time. But uh, Mitch said, you know, take a look at him. He's perfect. And then there's the Bugsy Siegel connection where he plays, you know, um, Mo Green and the Godfather. And, uh, 
So we sent the uh, the scene to his agent, and he just flipped out, loved it, and made the total connection with Mo Green. And uh, uh, then we showed up, and the amazing thing is he has a long speech in uh, in the film where, you know, I won't reveal the plot point, but in, it involves around Bugsy Siegel and, and the mob, et cetera. And um, his wife, Sharon Wilcox, actually plays his wife in the, in the, in the film. And uh, we were sitting outside this Airbnb, and uh, just before we went in to do the, the, the bulk of that big speech, um, he all of a sudden just started to get really, uh, really intimate and confessional with me. And, it, you know, his backstory is he was involved in the, the, the Boston mob, um, you know, uh, a little before Whitey Bulger's time, but he was basically um, charged with murder and he wound out in jail and F. Lee Bailey got him out. But he was basically, he was a good fellow, you know, in Boston uh, for, for quite a long, quite a long time. And then basically when he was uh, sprung for, for, you know, for the, for the, the murder rap, he essentially just said, I'm going to change, you know, which he, kept telling me, you know, I didn't do it, but, um, he just flipped, he said, I got to change my life, flipped the coin. One, one side was Miami. The other side was Los Angeles. He was always kind of interested in, uh, acting and flipped the coin and it came up LA and he went to LA, but he started just telling me why this part, you know, totally connected with him. And he goes, he just leaned in and goes, I don't know if you know about me, Danny, but you know, I was in there. I was in there, you know, and then he just starts to like, he starts to like, just kind of confess some things, which, you know, um, I don't want to get into too much, but it was this long emotional confession that he did to me at the table. And at at the time he said, I, he was thinking about writing an autobiography. Um, but he was so just juiced up with this, uh, you know, nostalgia that he was in the throes of experiencing that, that dark past. And I just looked at, uh, Brendan, my producer and Jeremy Dyson. And we I said, let's roll. And we just brought him in and he just ripped the speech in one take. And we used like 80% of that take, uh, uh, which was coming off of just this, um, this bizarre conversation we had just before, um, and it was amazing. Um, but he was just a, you know, totally sweet guy, just an amazing guy. And, uh, man, he had tales. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That performance comes, I mean, that's, it's, it's really, uh, I would say the word chilling. It's like when, when he says particularly the, the line, you know, he repeats it. I did that. You know, I did that. It's like, that's total conviction. I completely believe it. It, you know, transcends a fabricated performance it's like okay you know what what you're telling me makes complete sense (laughs) right well that's good because that that actually that line delivery just came right after this this confession to me so yeah you 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 nailed it there was uh, there was some extra gear working for sure (laughs) fantastic um well i I don't know if there's anything else you want to say about um uh the the latest short uh well no i would just say that scammerhead now finally is now out on streaming as they say uh so it's good, um, good. it's yes you know um it's it's available it's out there on you know youtube movies and google play and other uh, other uh 
outlets. So that's available to be watched. And yeah, hopefully we'll work on getting the others out there, getting some physical media happening, uh, you know, over the next, uh, over the next little bit. So, um, you know, these, yeah, I think it's criminal that, uh, I mean, I just, I tried to rewatch the last big thing and it's like, uh, yes. Yeah. We're, we're, you know, in the process of hunting down where, where these prints exist and, uh, where the, you know, the, the master print, uh, may be. So hopefully we can, uh, you know, we can, we can get on that and get, uh, not have these just abstract, but actually, uh, physically out there. Wonderful. Well, uh, don't want to take any further amount of your time, sir, and really appreciate the... Well, no, this was a blast, you guys. Excellent questions. Uh, you know, I, I haven't heard the name Hoisman's in a long, long time. So, uh, kudos to you. Yeah, no idea if I have the correct pronunciation. <laughs> um, yeah, it doesn't yeah. matter. Yeah. yeah. Pronounce with conviction. That's all that matters. You yeah, know? I'm, like... I'm going to go uh, intoxicate myself <laughs> with uh, my, my strange... Um, melange of perfumes now <laughs> exactly <laughs> till i, till I uh, make myself sick <laughs> yes and then and then plan a long trip to london and then don't go <laughs> right so, yes yeah. <laughs> well uh yeah happy new year see you in the future happy new year to you guys caleb it was great to meet you guys and you know uh, uh dan it was great to meet you thank you so much let us know if you're ever back in the uh, the the old new present future south i will definitely do that and i'll i'll bring uh i'll bring a couple blood slides one for each of one for each of <laughs> that's right yeah yeah we'll, we'll get this. yeah we we didn't really comment on that but uh yeah thanks thanks for the southern representation <laughs> albeit twisted and uh you know slamming the cliche with a mallet uh yes yes uh, it's it, it was there, although no, it's good for real shot in Memphis and uh, New Orleans there. So that was not AI CGI. Uh, I was I was there. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, I, I, I like that. I like that it took a Canadian to, to get the South. To rise again. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Happy to be of service. All right. Thanks, guys. Take care. Well, thank you, Dan. You too. Bye. Have a great night. See ya. Please tune the next episode for another very special guest. We appreciate your patronage. If you have any suggestions for future guests, hate mail, blackmail, or another type of message, please do not hesitate to write to the Exile Hour at protonmail.com. As always, be safe, be vigilant, and keep listening.